leadership in cybersecurity isn't just about understanding threats. It's about leading a team to navigate them with confidence. At CPF Coaching LLC, we specialize in taking your leadership skills to the next level. With over 15 years in the cybersecurity field, we empower professionals and startups to reach unprecedented heights. Imagine having a personalized coaching experience tailored to your unique career ambitions. From strategic planning to masterful pitch and interview preparations, we're here to guide you through every challenge. Join us for our unique value proposition workshops or dive into our vibrant learning community for continuous skill advancement. Don't just be a part of the industry. Redefine it. Visit cpfcoaching.com for more information. Discover the leader within. Contact CPF Coaching LLC today and schedule your strategic session. Hey, security peeps. We are live with another edition of Breaking into Cybersecurity. It is CISO Thursdays. And we have a special guest with us who's back. But before we get into Alan, um, I'm Renee Small, cybersecurity super recruiter, helping awesome leaders hire great talent. I'm here with Minnie behind me. I'm in my daughter's room today once again because we moved. But I'll get into um, our my co-host, Chris Fulon. Hey everyone, Chris Fulon, uh, cybersecurity consultant and career coach. And today I have the honor of introducing the all famous Mr. Alan Alford, host over at the Cyber Ranch podcast, Hat Included. Hat Included, yeah. free, free with every <laughs> Alan. <laughs> <laughs> we love having you here, Alan. How are you today? Doing good. I don't know about uh, all the all the all the praise Chris is heaping on me, but uh, doing good. <laughs> it's a well deserved praise for sure. So today we have um, James Azar is going to jump in while Chris is jumping out. So I think that will happen like in about a half an hour or so. Um, but we have some, as usual, hot topics. And the first one we're going to talk about is clickbait, correct? And ransomware or to get all together or one in the store separately? Uh, let's talk about ransomware first. I mean, to say it happened okay. over the, the long weekend. Um, so I, I think first I wanted to get the hot take from Mr. Alan Alford on ransomware, Kaseya, and uh, some supply chain risk. Ransomware hot take. So you know me, I'm not really the hot take guy, but, um, you know, it's occurred to me, I was just looking at the Verizon data breach uh, investigation report for this year, the 2021 that just came out, I don't know, a month ago. A couple of months ago, maybe now. Time flies. Um, I was looking at all the various attacks and all the things that they were cataloging. For example, credential stuffing. 23% of us have been a victim of credential stuffing. I would argue that almost every attack you see today is, in fact, a precursor to ransomware. <laughs> the, the, that ransomware is the end goal, regardless of what the starting position is and how, how, you know, how they first get their foot in the door. So I, I think, you know, when we talk about all these various conversations, all these, all these aspects of different types of attacks we're, we're facing, different types of trials and tribulations, stuff that might be addressed with security awareness training, stuff that might be addressed with technology. I think, I think ransomware has become the end goal du jour of the, uh, of the bad guy scene. I, I really think, you know, and I don't know if I could quantify it, but I would argue that 80 or 90% of all things we're seeing are ultimately aimed at a ransomware attack rather than what used to be just traditional anti, you know, virus and malware and, you know, phishing schemes that are looking to do, you know, business email compromise and, and, and trying to, you know, transfer Apple gift cards and all the other shenanigans that we see. I really think ransomware has become just the giant beast on the landscape. I mean, I, I totally agree with you. When you when you think of the operational overhead of 
business email compromise, gift cards, where they have to be interacting with their victims and going back and forth just to be able to extract those funds when they could simply launch and automate a ransomware campaign with botnets, um, it, it, it facilitates the distribution that much quicker. Um, when, when it comes to organizations that you work with, you worked with in the past, talking to peers, colleagues, um, as a CISO, how, can, how high on the concern list is ransomware currently and what are some of the things that you're doing about it? Yeah, I'd say I'd say number one on the list for real number one. Um, and and over the last couple of years, you know, talking to peers, talking to colleagues, clients, customers, um, you know, places I've worked, etc. Um, the number of ransomware attempts that I've seen and even successful instances I've seen is staggering. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's definitely number one on the list as far as what folks are doing about it. Uh, I would say your number one uh, variable if you're going to combat ransomware is MFA. Um, I would I would definitely put that as number one, period, end of discussion, multi-factor auth, because they're ultimately going to get the credentials. I don't care how much security awareness training you do. I don't care how many um, lockdowns you do on system accounts and machine-to-machine accounts and all the other things you can do. At some point or another, a human account will be compromised. It will be just an average worker. It's not going to be an admin. But from there, they can pop credentials with, you know, Kerber roasting, Mimicats, whatever. If there's ever been a local admin, you know, an admin local to the box, et cetera, et cetera. You guys know how it works. Um, I think MFA is probably our number one defense with, with a really good, strong security awareness training as our number two defense. And, and for those that are just breaking into the industry and might not know what, what those types of attacks are, do you want to quickly describe what, what yeah, those sure. are? Yeah, sure. So, you know, Joe Average user obviously doesn't have permissions to run around the network and do all the things, right? That takes an admin to be able to run around and do all the things. Um, but the reality is that admins log on to people's machines. If you go look at your uh, work-issued computer today and you go to C colon backslash users on your Windows box and you'll see your name, but you'll also probably see C users backslash somebody else's name, and that somebody else was the administrator who set your computer up, somebody with privileges and, and more rights than you have on the network and on the machines on the network. Well, that means that that administrator's credentials have been, uh, even though encrypted and, and, and housed properly in theory, stored on your box. Some of these attacks that the bad guys use can actually harvest those credentials off your local box, decrypt them, figure them out, reverse engineer them, and then, and then apply them elsewhere on the network. And if the administrator hasn't changed his or her password... Boom! They've got free access to the world. Um, so that's that's kind of the the steps there, and there's a variety of tools that allow them to do that. I appreciate that. As a as a newbie coming into the field, you know, with this being the number one concern for security officers, what would you say to them in terms of like how they can potentially be the part of the solution to the challenges that you have? So. Making your organization aware of the threat of ransomware and how real it is uh, and how scary it can be. There's plenty of statistics out there. I mentioned earlier the Verizon Data Breach Investigation Report, the DBIR. Uh, I highly recommend that you go download the last few years' worth of DBIRs uh, and look at them and look at the trends, and you'll see that things like ransomware are, are happening on a large scale. They're growing and increasing. The amount of monies involved that businesses are having to pay out, uh, the FBI and other organizations track how much money is on the table, but it's ridiculous. Worldwide, there's billions of dollars uh, being wasted by businesses making ransomware payments. It's it's insane how much money is involved. So characterizing that cost and that overhead and that risk to your to your organization, number one thing you can be doing is the security practitioner for sure. Um, 
once you've done that, obviously, uh, evangelizing what the solutions can be and basic stuff like security awareness training. Let's teach people not to click on things. Don't download executables you're not familiar with. Uh, don't click on random links. Uh, if it looks like it's a PDF from somebody you've dealt with before, you know, but it looks a little weird, call them. Don't just double-click the PDF, and don't just reply to that email and say, hey, is this really you, right? One of the number one things you have to coach people on is if you get an email from a bad guy and you reply with, hey, is this really you, you're just emailing the bad guy who, of course, is going to say, yes, it's really me. Don't respond to the communication you got. Pick up the phone. You know you know Sally's phone number. Call Sally and say, hey, did you just send me a PDF? No, I didn't. Oh, thank you. Um, be cautious, be cognizant, be paranoid, um, take that extra step every time you see something that looks clickable or doable or linkable or, you know, something that if you, if you interact with it, further things will happen, have that second thought and really make sure it's what you're expecting, when you're expecting from who you're expecting. And if you have any suspicions or doubts whatsoever, just reach out to them through another channel and, uh, and ping them, train your users on that same mindset and that same approach and that same paradigm. And then, um, per what I said earlier, MFA, multi-factor authentication. If, if when you log into your computer, you're using a username and a password plus something else like a Google authenticator code on your phone, maybe, um, could be even as simple as a text message or an email, not as strong, but better than nothing. Um, something that's a second factor that, that gets sent to you and only you through some means that you can then plug in in addition to the username and password. Well, now if the bad guy has captured a username and password, he can't remotely log in because he doesn't have that second factor of authentication, whatever it might be. And that could also be fingerprint scans, biometric, uh, you know, YubiKeys. YubiKeys, YubiKeys is a great one. Um, and YubiKey has really expanded their footprint. Like there's, there's a YubiKey for the phone now. Um, there's YubiKeys that are teeny, teeny, tiny things you just stick in a USB port and forget about. Um, there's a lot of different solutions like that. Uh, the military, the DOD in the U.S. uses CAT cards, for example. Um, there's, there's a thousand and one ways to have that second factor that isn't just a password. So if the bad guy steals the password, he still needs the second factor. He can't get in and do anything. Yeah. Couple comments here. Um, Mr. P says, "Are the ransomware or his question is, are the West ransomware phenomenon rise that we're seeing coming from high-profile APT groups, or is it regular Randys from their li- living room?" It's scarier than that. Um, we mentioned earlier. I think I think one of y'all. I can't remember if it was uh, Chris or Renee, but you, you mentioned that um, you know there's botnets can be exploited and taken advantage of to do this, right? It, it's way worse than that. At this point, on the black market, you know, on the dark web. You can go to a website where a variety of ransomware companies essentially are competing with one another for your business as Joe Average Criminal who knows nothing about computers but wants to conduct a ransomware campaign. It is literally ransomware as a service now. So if you are of a criminal bent and have no technical skills whatsoever, it doesn't matter. You can go subscribe to one of these services, pay them the money. They will give you the uh, code, the execution, the payload, the mechanism to hack and break in. Uh, They will set up your Bitcoin account and teach you how to charge the Bitcoin and get the anonymous currency, like the full shooting match. Everything you need to do to conduct conduct a successful ransomware campaign as the bad guy, you can do all of that now without knowing very much about computers at all. And these guys even have 24 by 7 tech support and they compete with each other for your criminal business. Uh, and, and, you know, there's literally tiers of offerings just like with a real company of, you know, oh, I just need, you know, eight, eight, eight to five tech support or I need the 24 by seven package. Oh, you want a platinum package, sir? It's just like transacting with a real software company. That's how prevalent and obvious and capable and out there this stuff is now. So so the rise is not just APTs and it's not just the kid in the basement. It's it's the entire criminal underworld at this point, whether they have computer skills or not. Wow. 
that's the scariest part, I think, that it's just so prevalent. And it's the, when I heard about ransomware as a service, I don't know how long, maybe last year, I was my mouth dropped open. Um, Zoe writes here, that's crazy. That's exactly how, <laughs> how I felt. It is crazy. I it was just crazy. like, OMG. So um, Mr. P also says regarding training for employees, a good strategy would be to demonstrate the benefit that they would they would receive. Studies show that people respond to what is in it for them. Yeah, absolutely. I would say uh, focus on the emotional appeal. And when you think of what Alan said previously, if it requires action, you're going to do something in that messaging to trigger an emotional appeal, a sense of urgency, um, a sense to make you click. Um, it could be, whoops, your credit card was charged, click here to do the refund, or this, this item that you ordered from Amazon is about to be delivered and you're like, I didn't order anything. So you, your, your curious nature clicks on it. Um, anything with an emotional appeal, their social engineers thought about your reaction to that and you have to stop, think, and then react as to how you're going to deal with it and not just instantly click on it. Mm -hmm. And I think to Alan's point earlier that we're all going to get popped at some point. Like we will all be in a position. I was in a position a couple months, uh, maybe maybe two years ago where someone called, I had baby screaming, kids, all this different stuff happening. They called me, they asked to verify something. I It didn't make sense at first or the email or whatever it was at first. And then, you know, after it happened two or three times, I was like, yeah, that's it. That's it. And then when I realized, whoa, who is this person? What's the information? You know, it was about a, it was about a background check or something. And I was just like, why, wait a minute. Why am I as, you know, why am I verifying this information? And when I call back, because again, the social engineering comes from all different aspects. It comes from the email, comes from phone calls. I get the phone call and immediately I was like, wow, I got, you know, <laughs> it happened to me. Um, and I'm aware, I know I've done the security, you know, like I know more than anybody. So um, from a social engineering standpoint, I like Alan's point about how we will all, something will happen. It's the, it's how do we, the multi-factor authentication, like the other aspects of just staying as aware as possible. So speaking yeah. of, of the other aspects, um, Alan, from, from your experience, how well do you think organizations are prepared from um, a resiliency standpoint um, to recover from a potential ransomware incident. Right. So barring being able to stop it in the first place, right? Like we talked about MFA and some of the other technologies, and you can get into zero trust and SASE and a bunch of other technologies to help stop it in the first place. Let's assume that somehow, some way, even if you have the best defenses, the bad guy gets through and the ransomware happens anyway. Now what? Um, your number one defense against ransomware that has already occurred is not paying the money and getting the decryption tool from the bad guys because, frankly, half the time they won't give you the tool, even though you paid the money. They are bad guys after all. And even though they're getting great technical support from their people, that doesn't mean that you're going to get great technical support from them. I know some folks that have paid the ransom, received the decryption tool, run the decryption tool, and it turns out it's crappy and barely works and doesn't know how to walk directories and, you know, blah, 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 blah. So don't rely on paying the ransom as your as your exit escape you know vehicle from the situation the first and foremost thing you can do should do and have already done and are already doing is valid tested and most importantly offline backups if you 
back up all your servers to tape and then store those tapes somewhere completely offline and the bad guys hit, you can restore from those tapes, right? If you back up, say, to a, a permanently attached cloud environment, well, guess what? The bad guys are going to see that permanently attached cloud environment and they're going to jump on in and encrypt it as well. Or if you're backing up a server to a server on-prem, same story. If you've got some sort of a backup repository that's always live and connected to the environment, the point is the bad guys are smart enough to know backups is what you're going to use to recover and so they will go out of their way to find and hunt any backups that are online that they can find, that they can attach to, and they're going to encrypt those as well. Because if they can get you and your backups, you got to pay. So the trick is to have good backups and have them done on a regular basis and have them tested on a regular basis and then have those backups offline, right? So emphasis on the tested. This is so critically important. I've worked with clients and customers over the years who, oh, yeah, we've been backing up for three years now. we got three years worth of backup tapes. Okay, when's the last time you actually took one of those tapes and tried to restore from it? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Well, once your ransomware is not the time to find out your backups weren't running correctly, that your tapes are old and corrupted because of the physical media, or, you know, whatever. There's a million and one reasons why a backup might fail. You're supposed to be doing baselines plus incrementals, et cetera, et cetera. Zoe M says, have a backup to your backups. Heck yeah. That's another really good, you know, having more than one, having it be redundant. And, you know, I can't emphasize enough the offline storage, right? Whatever you back up, however you back up, test it regularly and make sure it's not connected live to your environment because if it is, it'll get ransomed too. Well, yeah, yeah. When you say offline, you just mean not connected. So it could be online yeah. at a cloud storage provider, just not connected to your yeah. active system all the time. Like you exactly. do a backup and then you ship it off and then you exactly. don't touch it. Or, or it's a tape library or, or some other machine or mechanism that you back up to. And then once the backups are conducted, you, you disconnect the network connection one way or the other. And, you know, depending on the size of your shop and sophistication of your environment, I've literally known people that literally would back up from a server to a disk array and then just go over and unplug the network cable every time the backup was done. Literally, just unplug the network cable. Now the bad guys can't get to it. You've air-gapped it. Um, could be something sophisticated. could be something that simple, but but keep it separate. Right. Nikki Jones says it's no longer, quote, oh, it will never happen in my business, end quote. It is now, when will it happen in my business? True. So very True. Uh, Daniel Curla says the three, two, one rule for backups. I don't know the three, two, one rule. I don't know what that is. <laughs> what is that? Daniel, let us know what that is. Um, Alan, uh, I wanted to ask about the size of businesses because I've been hearing um, anecdotal, anecdotal, just you know, talks about small businesses being here. So we hear the, we, you know, obviously the ones that hit the news, we know big, huge ransomware attack. Um, you know, uh, medical facilities, um, healthcare organizations, things like that. But then there's all of these smaller companies that, you know, I kind of hear it on the side. Like, I mean, we talking to a peer and they're like, oh yeah, by the way, you know, we want to, we want, we want you to talk to our <laughs> CEO because, you know, he told me that we were hit, they were hit with ransomware and I don't know anything about security. And, you know, so are you, do you know, um, the the uh, the uh, ratio of like small business or how many small businesses are being hit with ransomware? It it really depends on who the attacker is to answer that question. And here's what I mean by that. I just finished telling the whole story about somebody who's got no technical expertise whatsoever can conduct a ransomware campaign. You yeah. would imagine that somebody who lacks that degree of technical sophistication is basically going to find a target, send the phishing email, get the link, do the thing, ransom, get the money, right? 
in that scenario, the size of your organization is not something that they really know or understand, and they don't care because they're blanketing thousands of these emails out to every address they can find. Uh, maybe they've also gone on the dark web and purchased a credential stuffing database, and you know whatever. They're 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 attacking savagely with a spam approach. The more sophisticated attackers are definitely going to map your organization before they pull the trigger. So a larger scale organization is going to be who they target. Once they've got those admin credentials and are around the network, they're going to continue to be around the network for a while before they actually pull the trigger on the ransom. They're going to learn the environment, find the backups, do all the things that they need to do to be sophisticated and to truly understand the size and scope and shape of your org. Sometimes those attacks are highly targeted where they're only going for a big organization from the get-go. So the more sophisticated the attack, the more likely they're going to only focus on the bigger guys where the bigger piles of money are. Um, and the less sophisticated, you're, you're just going to be caught up in sort of a shotgun blast of spammy, you know, phishing emails. Um, so nobody's immune, and it really kind of depends on the sophistication of the attacker as to which, you know, as to what your risk factor is as a smaller organization. I would argue um, it doesn't matter what size you are anymore. It doesn't. I, I've seen a teeny tiny dentist office with three computers and eight employees get ransomed. Um, you know, it's a teeny tiny hospital in a, in a rural county with only a hundred beds got ransomed. I mean, it 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 doesn't matter. Um, but, they will get you. You have some some of the more sophisticated attackers that are searching for uh, managed security service providers mm-hmm. that then allow them to scale by attacking one and then affecting many exactly in, in the same attack. Exactly. Any any organization that's large and well connected to other organizations is a prime target. And this is why, for example, on it, you know, and I hate to I hate to wave flags about past breaches and public events, but this is why SolarWinds was such a delicious target. If you could get their source code, which they did, their source code is deployed on networks worldwide. Bag one, bag many, right? So the bag one, bag many attack approach, always the sophisticated attackers are gonna are gonna go for that. Always. Yeah. This company that um the person who told me about this one small company was a third party vendor. And I was like, that's, that seems like such an easy target because then you have access, you know, it's easier to get into them, you know, and then access to to the others. So the other, um, their clients. So a couple of good points. I want to shout out first and foremost, I want to say to everyone that's on YouTube, Zoe and everyone else, look, uh, Mr. P thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. I forgot to say it at the beginning of the podcast. Um, and everybody else chiming in on LinkedIn. Thank you so much. So Daniel followed up to our three, two, one. He said means that you have three backups of your information, two of which are local on different devices or mediums and one offsite backup. Perfect. And and then, um, Heather Hall, I believe a new friend just said the grandfather, father, son is another way it's described. Yeah. I like that. I like that. Three, two, one. It's a great way to it's a great way to put it and a great way to think about it. You know, and it's it's funny too. We talked about like you get the phishing email, don't respond to the phishing email, go offline for that. That mindset should be extended to everything you do. This this idea that we have three, two, one, that, that you're really being paranoid about your backups. Be really paranoid about those communications too. Even in my personal life. Uh, my de- my debit card got jacked a little while ago and all of a sudden charges on my debit card in some town I don't live in miles and miles and miles away. And I had to call my bank and say, those are not my charges. And they shut down my debit card. And then they issued me a new card. Well, now every freaking place I pay bills, I'm having to log in and change the credit card information. Right. And I didn't manage to catch it everywhere. So there were a couple of places that I, I suddenly they're harassing me about, hey, you owe us money. And 
my policy on those kinds of things, somebody calls me and says, hey, this is so-and-so who I know I'm doing business with, and you owe us money. Okay, I know my debit card got transitioned. So, so the likelihood that this is a legitimate call from a legitimate source is, is you know, 90 plus percent. I still say, hanging up and calling you back. Mm-hmm. And I won't take that call from any, even if it's somebody I'm doing business with, right? Uh, and to Renee's point, we can all get popped. I know a security professional who had just ordered a dress for his daughter's quinceanera and was expecting a shipment and got one of those, your shipment is delayed, fake fishes emails. And, and he fell for it because he was expecting a shipment, right? So, so yeah. just always be paranoid. This grandfather, father, son, this three, two, one, apply that same level of paranoia to every facet of the game. Don't ever accept when they call you that it's the people you know you owe money to. Call them back on the number you know for a fact is their real number and ask to pay your bill that way. Just uh, yeah. maintain that paranoia in, in all things and, and you can, you know, you'll succeed. Yeah. Yeah, I heard of an, uh, another person, I think it was the CEO of a cyber company, um, who it was something with his kid's school. And, you know, something was hap- something on the news was happening. I don't know if it was one of these, you know, major like school lockdown situations. They sent an email, of course, you know, he immediately just pops right on um, or clicks the email and there it is. So yeah. these folks are paying close, close, close attention to all of us. Look who's here. Hey, James Azar. There we James are. Azar. You know, there are business calls and there are calls. This is the call I'm taking. <laughs> <laughs> welcome, welcome. So Zoe says zero trust. Uh, Joseph says zero trust everywhere. Did I come in at like the worst part of this conversation? No, you did. We were just saying, don't trust random podcasters, especially when they (laughs) pop on your screen last minute. Uh, Assume the worst, be paranoid, Uh, reach out to them through separate channels to verify they're actually the podcaster. They claim they are and not a deep fake video. That is zero trust James Azar. Okay. So, um, Mark, Schleisner says, what do you mean by, quote, tapes, external hard drives or something else? I'm, I'm old fashioned and it's been a long time since I've run backups. So forgive me. I'm talking about, you know, DAT and DLP and all these other ancient formats. But, yes, there are machines that have uh, non-disc media with robots that'll sit there and stick one cartridge after another into the device. And, and you back up that way. And it's. Uh... Yeah, go ahead. You, Chris. I used to have to do that manually. Yes. Um, yes. In a, in a data center. So <laughs> yeah. not everyone robot. has a robot. <laughs> non-disk, non-cloud backups do still exist. They are a thing, um, but that's essentially it. It's it's a slower form of offline storage. It's cheaper than hard drives. That's why people do it. If you're having to back up your entire estate, purchasing that number of hard drives all over again is more expensive than that number of whatever the modern cartridges and tapes are. Uh, and I, I don't know what the current standard is, but they're always cheaper. That's why you do them, but they're slow. Uh, you can't use them real time like you use a hard drive. You're having to recover files in a slower fashion to restore from them. But uh, ultimately, if you've got a ton of data, they're cheaper than disks. Gotcha. Bye, Chris. Bye. So Thank you, Alex. It's not easy to quantify the number of small businesses affected by ransomware because usually small businesses use management solutions from third parties. And when those third parties are hit with an attack, thousands of small businesses are impacted. That is so very true. And I think they keep it quiet. Like the way this lady was telling me, you know, it's like a recruiter peer, like, oh, I'm working on something for this other company. And I forget what kind of recruitment she does. Then she connected with me and said, hey, you know, they told me quietly that they were hit by hand, ransomware. So it's not like they're, you know, probably telling the world that this is happening. Yeah, there's usually NDAs and things like that in place because if you're if you're a third party provider of any sort, again, you're you're the biggest target of all because one one is many. 
Um, yeah. Odds are you've got relationships with your client and contracts with your clients such that they're not allowed to run around saying so-and-so got hacked because if you get hacked, that's very bad for your business. So generally that kind of stuff is kept under NDA wraps, et cetera. Uh, so there's a lot of it going on we don't know about. There's a ton of ransomware going on that we don't know about and never will. Jeez. Will McCullough says the uglier part is ran- uh, is ransom of ransomware is that it is created to stay latent in the system long enough to make into make it into the backup schedule. It is constantly getting more difficult. No substitute for fo- focusing yep. on the basics. Absolutely. And this ties back into that. The intelligent ones uh, and the technically savvy ones are going to map your organization and learn it thoroughly, learn where your backups are, learn how they are. They'll be in your network sometimes for months before they pull the trigger. And that's plenty of time for them to pull off moves like that. Crazy. Crazy. Mike McFarthing said, scariest is when the deep fake is funnier than the original. There you <laughs> go. For you, James. It's a great discussion. <laughs> and, uh, Mike says, check SolarWinds. They were brave enough to share their attack. Absolutely, they were. And uh, there was a lessons learned there. And, and they, they came out to the industry and walked through everything that took place. Um, I've since seen their new CEO, the post-attack CEO, uh, have, have talked to him as well. Um, I, I think they managed it pretty well. The, the whole blame the intern thing was not a good kickoff for how they managed that one. <laughs> but, uh, but at the end of the day, I think they ultimately did well by it. And, and I think that, uh, you know, Mandy and FireEye, those guys did a really good job of transparency and, and sharing with the community when, when they first found they were hacked and, and stayed with it and stayed public and stayed transparent. Um, there's been some very positive and some very negative uh, output from victims of ransomware in our community. Uh, and, and I think there's some models and lessons learned that we can all take home that that level of transparency is really, truly required. Trying to hide it and cover it up these days makes no sense at all. Uh, as we said, it can happen to anybody. How you deal with it and how you deal with your clientele and, and the greater world when you share the story says a lot about your integrity as an organization. Yeah. You so know, Microsoft said- did the same when it came to their zero day vulnerability with exchange, they mm-hmm. came out, they were live blogging it. Yep. Which yep. I thought was, was, was paramount to how a vulnerability within the supply chain should really be handled, mm-hmm. um, which is not only IOCs, but here are the things we're finding, by the way, here are the IOCs of what we're finding. We don't know what the fix is yet, but here, everyone go mitigate, go explore, right. let us know what you're finding. Microsoft did a community engagement type of thing for their zero days, which I thought were, you know, the kind of the playbook going forward of how you should be doing it. If you're a supply chain company, I'm not talking about a small mom and pop shop or a small law office. Right. But if you're a Microsoft, if you're a solar winds, if you're a uh, uh, SAP, if you're anything that has to do with the, you know, business operations and continuity and network integrity, then you should be doing it. You should be doing it like that. You should have a live blog where, you're posting stuff and updating it as you go along. Exactly. Exactly. Zoe said, is it possible to accidentally back up the ransomware in the system? Yep. That's exactly what we were talking about. If they lurk for long enough, um, their payload is in your backups. Um, By the time they've even launched the ransomware, they're already ready to launch it in your backups and have the executables stored away neatly that you, you put away for them. Uh, So that's absolutely possible. Wow. Uh, Mr. P says, regarding the disclosure of attacks, what do you think about legislation wanting to make it a legal thing for you to disclose when you are hit? They want to make it mandatory yep. to disclose that you've been hit by a cyber attack. Um, that's going to be a very hard bill to pass, I think. Yep. yep. And there's going to be a ton of people that are going to fight it. 
the only companies that have to report it right now are publicly traded companies because the, they actually report it in their K-10s. And so you'll see that, and a lot of people don't pay attention to it because they minimize it in their K-10. And they'll say, you know, 4,800 records were uh, uh, part of a, uh, you know, supply chain breach somewhere. And they downplay it in their K-10s. It's actually yeah. very, very common. And, and um, one of the, sorry, that is my phone. Ringers um, off. <laughs> you know that is um that is uh, uh my my fault i was on a call so uh i forgot to put ringer off here i didn't get into podcast mode right i just got off one call and jumped on the other so uh <laughs> but but what i was saying is um what i was saying though is yeah let the phones blow up today um so here we go all yeah, the phones different ways is no one on linkedin or youtube watching me right now and everyone's calling me i am going to hold all these people accountable for not getting the views but um i, I forgot my i lost my train of thought you were saying that you think it's going to be difficult for legislation to be passed. yeah it's going to be, it's going to be really hard to do that i mean the k-10s get some of that job done for publicly traded companies but it's it's probably going to end up being in privacy laws, and yep. where they where they can sneak in the uh, ability to um, report a ransomware attack is in terror financing. So Congress can go on and say, anytime you pay someone a ransom, any sort of ransom that let's say it's over ten thousand U.S. dollars, then you have to report it to the Department of Justice. Otherwise, your CFO could face prosecution for money laundering and terror financing. And that's really how they're going to try to do it is they're going to try to do it in a way where the penalties on it are so harsh that you end up having to report it. Yeah. A couple more comments here. Mr. P follows up. That's why it's important to have different versions of the backups because some of them could be infected. When you get hit, mm -hmm. you need to see where and how the breach happened before going back online. I think that was his point to Alan's yep. comment earlier. Uh, this is Mark again. Mark Schleisner says the cyber attackers like to infiltrate malware into a services company, into a service mm -hmm. company's downloads of software patches. This is how the SolarWinds attackers hit so many victim companies at once. It was perfected by the Russians against the Ukraine in 2017 using NotPetya uh, infiltrated into accounting software downloads. Yep. Is there any way to stop this? Yeah, NotPetya was even specifically targeting the Ukrainian version of that particular accounting software. It knew to look for Ukrainian language, but then uh, it 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 broke out from there and it got crazy. They they originally had code looking for that language and decided to just target the app itself, and the app turned out to be used in Latin America and blah blah blah. And the rest is history. That was a worldwide assault. Um, yes, that is absolutely a thing. Yes, it is common. Yes, it is back to that bag one, bag many sort of paradigm we talked about that the bad guys are always looking for. As to how to prevent it, that's a whole nother podcast. Because what we're talking about is if you are part of the supply chain and you are part of the third party risk paradigm for some other company, then you've got a bunch of work you have to do to make sure you don't get compromised. At a high level, I'll, I'll cover kind of some of the, the high notes. Um, digitally signing your software payloads is key. Uh, making sure that every piece of software you distribute as a company is vouched and verified and digitally signed is actually coming from your company. That's that's mm -hmm. one way to start addressing the problem. Um, understanding and how you protect your source code and how you protect your pipeline that produces the code is another piece of it. Uh, separating, um, if you really want to go to the full extreme, and I guess I'll outline it very briefly. There's a bunch of voodoo to throw on the table here, but... Uh, let's say let's say it's a real CI/CD pipeline, continuous integration, continuous delivery, where they're just cranking code through on a regular basis, very rapidly, and, and doing rapid releases. You want to have a completely separate, air-gapped dev staging prod sort of environment where the code has to be 
carefully transported from one to the next. You want to have separate identity and access management environments uh, in each of these dev stage, prod, code signing, et cetera, just like you want to ideally air gap. There's a million and one ways to ensure that nothing can get from A to B without being carefully screened and scrutinized, and it's not automatically connected and just going to hop from A to B. They can't break one account on dev and then immediately go to staging with the same account. They have to break another account. You know, there's a million and one things you can do besides digitally signing in your environment to have separation, to have tracking, to have self-awareness. And that's the other piece, too, is that the pipeline's API should be constantly self-reporting. Every time a check is passed, every time a check is failed, all that stuff should be gathered, collated, self-reported. Uh, your CI/CD pipeline should have, you know, ideally mostly automated, but sometimes manual security checks as well at each stage and juncture. There's there's a million and one things the vendors can do to keep from being that vendor, right? SolarWinds could have done a lot more than what they did to, to not be the one that compromised everybody else. Every vendor has that obligation. It's an extraordinary amount of work. It's a lot of overhead. To do it right and do it well takes a great amount of effort. But, so, Alan, is, you know, go ahead. I'm sorry, Renee. No, it, it's okay. I was just thinking as Alan was sharing that, that it did at the end when he said a lot of overhead, a lot of it, see, it just seemed like it would take it, you know, if thinking about it from the company's perspective, the the amount of time and effort and dollars that it would take to implement something, you know, like this versus getting their product out quickly, because we all we all know everyone wants faster, quicker, better, like fast. Um, so I'd be curious as to, you know, what companies would actually be doing something like this um and the Automated. impact that has on their their client base like if they if they're slower if, if they're in competition with others and they have this it's more secure but the other people are are not doing this and getting out there faster um i'd just be curious as to how how it would work because that does sound i mean it sounds secure but it just sounds like a lot so, so one of those is automation so when you look at everything that um alan just spoke about You've got to integrate um, security into your DevOps process. And here comes a buzzword, DevSecOps, okay? So um, DevSecOps, really cool buzzword for a lot of different uh, organizations, but it's a real policy. But part of the challenge with code today isn't the fact that we write and deploy code so much. It's the fact that our code isn't written by one group. It's written by multiple groups using multiple libraries that are open source repositories that are available through GitHub, GitLab, Bitbucket, and others. All of that's coming together to deploy one aspect of a functionality within our business, and it creates greater challenges. One of the things we have to look at as a community is how do we go to GitHub, GitLab, Bitbucket, and create some level of security service that exists within you know, they're hosting of these code repositories and some of the changes that get done um, within these open source code repositories that could be malicious in nature. So the GitHub model used to be that so many people update code and so many people are reviewing it that it's going to make it really, really hard for an attacker to um, go in and do the kind of attack that we saw in SolarWinds or uh, uh, or, or m the, some of the more recent ones like Microsoft uh, Exchange and others. But that's not the case anymore. These open source repositories, a lot of times, they it's, it's almost like a phishing email. So you know how we talk to users, look at the email address on top of the uh, email you get and make sure it says Amazon with an O and not a zero? 
So they do the same with repositories. If I'm a if I'm a coder and I'm looking for a repository on GitHub, and let's say I'm looking for a repository James and Allen. Well, if I put Allen with the an E or Allen with instead of an L an I, right, or a capital I or whatever, you're not noticing it in the in the realm that you're working in, and so you're automatically connecting to a malicious repository. And you've already granted them access to everything you're doing just by doing that. The moment you connected, the moment you've interjected that repository into what you're doing, you know, that's it. It's game over. Yep. And that's where we need more partnerships. And that's one thing I talk about in security. And I think we all need to look at it from people looking to break into security to anyone else is how do we start to build those partnerships because security isn't Alan on his own, isn't James on his own, isn't Brent on his own, isn't Leslie on his own, but it's how can Alan, Brent, James, and Leslie all come together and say, here's how we're going to address this threat because what impacts me is going to impact Alan, it's going to impact Brent, and it's going to impact Leslie. Microsoft Exchange and SolarWinds, you know, I've been saying this since the Kaseya, whatever they're called, People have been trying to get me to say their name correctly for like the last three days. I don't really care. Sorry. Just don't. Not wasting my time on figuring out how to say their name. Pick easy names. SolarWinds, pretty easy. Microsoft, fairly easy. Very hard to screw those names up. Please, folks, pick easy names. But we go, we, we look at that and I go, um, I kind of go back. How many of you guys are fans of The Sopranos? Alan, you a big Soprano fan? Remember, remember in season one and two, where uh, Silvio, uh, where uh, Tony Soprano keeps dreaming, and it's Silvio, and he goes, "Our true enemy has yet to reveal himself," and it's that whole time to where Big Pussy was actually like a Fed, uh, a Fed informant on the mafia. Yep, yep. yep. Solar Winds to me and Microsoft, everything we're seeing right now is just distractions that we're going along until our true enemy really reveals itself. Right. Solar Winds and Microsoft are going to have downstream impact for years to come and we're not going to see it it's yep. just going to pop up just like that and we're being distracted by all this stuff and remember last week we were talking about bikini gate next day this happens because we're getting right. distracted and not focusing on the stuff that we really should be looking at which is how do we bring this community together yep and how do we start to create the level of information sharing and trust going against your zero trust conversation that right. as practitioners we can support one another with the various vulnerabilities or uh security decisions we need to make in order to create a more secure ecosystem online for our organizations and our private lives and our information and our data and so forth yep that's perfect that's perfect and every one of those providers of software that that, that ends up getting used by other businesses has that onus to to start participating in that dialogue and i want to correct one thing i said i used the phrase air gap earlier to describe separating dev staging you know prod test whatever code signing uh true air gapping to, to james's point automation is key and true air gapping obviously can't be overcome with automation so an extreme and exaggerated example of kind of what i was getting at you want separation but you don't want true air gapping um, automation is so critical to, to getting it out the door. And this speaks to Renee's question about, you know, slowing down delivery. It is entirely possible to have absolutely sound security throughout your entire CI/CD pipeline, through your entire DevOps mechanism, great security, and still rapidly produce code and get it out the door quickly to your customers. You can have the best of both worlds. Mm-hmm. Automation is key. That investment up front is where the real time is spent. Once it's there, it flows and it goes. Um, so you can have it. You can have a, a good CI/CD pipeline with sound security, and you know, assurances that your customers are getting the code you think they're getting and they think they're getting, um, 
and and not slow down delivery to do it. It's definitely doable. It's just a lot of upfront investment. Awesome. Leslie says, Leslie Porter says, the internet is largely not regulated properly to keep up with the times. We as a society are asking for more problems. Yeah, I, I don't know. One of the biggest challenges I have, and it's not just because I'm a Texan, um, regulation to me is is a problem uh, most of the time. Um, and it, And it's not just because I'm a Texan. It's because... Very often, regulation is a slow-moving beast by its by its nature, right? Bill becomes a law. You guys, I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember the little constitutional bill sitting on the steps singing, singing all those cartoon songs mm-hmm. about when bills become a law. It's a painful process, and it's a painful process put together by people that know jack all about InfoSec, uh, quite frankly. So now you have a bunch of politicians relying on their quote-unquote experts, most of whom are actually industry insiders trying to, trying to sway things in the favor of their company or organization. There's lobbyists that are writing bills. You know, the amount of actual InfoSec awareness that feeds into that hopper is low and or biased. Then it goes through the convoluted bureaucratic process. By the time it hits the streets, the technology has already worked past it. I mean, if you want an example of this, even not counting legislation, just look at look – at, um, Look at frameworks. Look at SOC 2. I was just working on a SOC 2 framework uh, earlier this week, and and I laughed when I saw the word antivirus actually appear in one of the requirements, right? Antivirus is so so old technology now. Everything's EDR and everything's XDR and all these other types of technologies, but there's still regulations out there, frameworks out there, if you will, that are insisting on older tech, right? If, if the industry frameworks can't even keep up with it, how can legislation and regulation possibly keep up with it? That's my two cents. Yeah, regulation is definitely not the answer. You just wrapped everything up perfectly. And by the way, we're seeing it with bills. For example, the simplest the simplest bill to pass for cybersecurity practitioners, CISOs, is the data breach notification. Federalize that. Because today, what a lot of people don't know is if I go through an incident and I go through and I declare it to become a breach and I work in all 50 U.S. states plus territories, I have to have my lawyers report to every single AG the breach. And every single AG has a different requirements. And every single one of those requirements is different. And that is 60% of my cost to deal with a breach. So when you hear the cost of dealing with a breach, what it is, it's... 60% 60% of that is going to lawyers to report mm-hmm. it. But if I can go to the FTC and just report to the FTC and say, I went through a breach. Here you go, Mr. FTC. Here's all the details. FTC is my main contact. Well, that that saves a lot of time from a CISO perspective, an incident response and a forensics perspective, because we don't have to do 50 different forensics and e-discoveries. We do one and submit it once. And so... There, there is an aspect to that. That, that, and that bill, we've been advocating for it now since 2017, I believe, 16, 17. That, that's mm-hmm. been a priority. Mm-hmm. It's been rain. It's gone through committee. It's ready to go to the floor to vote. Where is it? Yep. Where is it? Slow moving beast. And I had uh, on my podcast on the Cyber Ranch podcast, I had a guest named Ian Thornton Trump, who's a Canadian expat over in England. And we were talking about big picture stuff that could be done besides regulation because, again, on that show, I was like, yeah, regulation isn't the way. And he talked about incentives, tax break incentives. What if we could come up with a good schema 
of the basic stuff every company should be doing to protect itself from ransomware. You know, like get your MFA going, get your, you know, whatever. Come up with a basic punch list, something relatively simple, very lightweight. And then the government says tax incentives to those who can prove they've done these things. What if you incentivize rather than using the stick? Now, again, you, you're up against that slow moving, would the right 10 things appear on the list and would they be the right things next six months, next year, et cetera. Um, but it's a possible start, right? Incentivize rather than punish and, and simply say tax breaks for those that can prove they've done a good job. Yeah. There, I think, I can't remember which company it was, but they did incentivizing employees. So they took that, that same kind of model and they did it for, you know, employees with clicking. So some some um, some companies, and I don't know if they're still doing this because this was a few years ago, when an employee, you know, clicked on the wrong, the emails um, and had those types of challenges where they had clickbait, things like that, they would kind of get the slap on the wrist. So they would get dinged. This other company chose to incentivize people who were would call stuff out. So you gave an incentive and I, I don't know if it was gift cards, it was something. And the there was such a huge, um, there was a huge change because now people are paying attention because they want that $25 Amazon gift or whatever it was that they were giving um, mm-hmm. to the employees. So incentives totally work. They absolutely yep. work. And they don't even um, have to be so that much. Couple, sorry, what'd you say, Alan? I, I, and they don't even have to be that much. It's, it's, yeah, it's interesting it was, that the positive reward lot. system for human psychology you know, I, I used to, I used to have a little plaque we printed up that basically said, uh, "My information security team loves me," and it had a smiley face on it. And we would give that out to employees in the company that were doing a good job and being champions and doing the right thing and being proactive. And it was amazing how many people wanted to have that little plaque on their desk, and everybody upped their security game for nothing more than a silly little plaque with a smiley face on it. Yep, but that's how it works. Human psychology. So a couple couple good questions here. I mean, a couple good comments when folks were saying regulation does not fill gaps. Education does. I think Heather all said that. Um, regulation is not the answer. That's what Mr. P said. He thought auto policing was a better strategy. Someone else made that comment too. Um, Brent. Brent made a couple good comments here. So Brent said it would be uh, good to see a shift away from blaming the victim. Might make the notifications easier to stomach for organizations. Yes. Yes. Yeah, you want to change media behavior. Good luck. Right. Good luck. But but speaking of, you know, speaking of, right, you're in the middle of it. You you may not have done all the right things. You may have done all the right things and somehow you got popped anyway. It doesn't matter. You're, You're in the middle of a ransomware attack. And now the government comes in and finds you and slaps you around as well. It's like we're already, you know, we're already up against this horrible situation and we're getting punished for it. When was Great, the last thanks. time that happened in the States, though, Alan? That the yeah, government came in and, 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 you know, really the government hasn't been there yeah. Um, yeah. to find someone. And, and the FBI and CISA have done an unbelievable job in Secret Service of building trust with the community to be like, hey, we're your partners here. We're not trying to prosecute you. We're not right. investigating you. Um and, and I think people and, and that test case to that, by the way, folks, is, is Equifax. If there was ever a place where the government should have been investigating was Equifax. Mm-hmm. And they, they kind of let that one slide. So I think that's that that's that's a really good one. Um, you know, if you're in Europe, on the other hand, though, I can't control the Europeans. I think British Airway just settled their little data breach. But, you know, Europe has a twisted way of looking at business. Um than we do here in the States. Mark Schleisner says, what is the incentive for companies to work together if they are competitors? 
I'll tell the tale of the ISAC. How about we start with that? There's a good model for that, for answering that question. And ISAC is a group of companies that get together under the banner of a given industry. Like there's a financial services ISAC. There's a healthcare ISAC. Uh, Don't ask me what ISAC stands for. ISAC, I can't remember, but it's basically an information security exchange where all the banks get together under the financial ISAC and they actually share information. We're currently being attacked and we're seeing these guys coming from this place with these IOCs, these indicators of compromise. And here's the details and everything that we've seen so far. And we're here to share it with all of our competitors. Why? Because if any one bank is getting attacked, the odds are another bank is going to get attacked too. The attacks tend to happen based on vertical, right? If you're going to hit a bank, you're probably going to hit more than one bank. And so by defending, by sharing that information, they're helping to strengthen the defense collectively of the entire herd. Um, so it, it helps. Even if it's competition, it helps. These folks are clearly in competition with one another. It's not like U.S. Bank and Chase are our best friends, you know, going going to dinner together every night. They're definitely comp- competitors. But when it comes to the ISACs and it comes to sharing and exchanging information, security, defenses, practices, attacks, uh, it's a great and fantastic um, way to help defend everybody. So I think the spirit of cooperation when it comes to InfoSec is there. Yeah. Um, you bring up the ISAC. I'll give another example, um, which is uh, when you look at now what GitHub and GitLab and Bitbucket are all trying to do, which is kind of, you know, create some level of integration between all three platforms. So repositories can be stored on either one of those, but still have the same standard. So um, I, th- I think that there's competition when it comes to sales and marketing. The competition doesn't really exist between practitioners. Like no one wants to see another CISA go through an event. And in fact, when I think I speak for me and Alan here, and I'm going to kind of go on, you know, Alan, if I'm wrong, let me know. But when one of our peers is going through an event, I think the messages that they get from us is how can we help? What do you need? And what are you looking for? Yeah. Because we just know that, you know, at some point or another, we're all going to be on that end, that person. And it's critical for us all to help each other. Yep. And and if you're the one going through it, odds are if you're a responsible practitioner and part of the community and no other practitioners, I've seen plenty of people even in the thick of battle recovering from the ransomware, take the time to gather the list of IOCs and shoot it out to all their peers and say, by the way, this is what hit us. Take a look, you know, keep your eyes out. Even the one going through it will very often share information mm-hmm. to help peers, even even though they're in the middle of a crisis themselves, they'll take that time to do that. Yeah. Brent says, amen, led in ISAC for a time, and it was an incredibly beneficial and collaborative environment for competitors to approach defense collectively. Amen. So, um, and I think it was Heather here that shared yep. a couple of the ISAC, so the FS ISAC um, yep. and the IT ISAC. Yeah, you know, healthcare was, ISAC, et cetera, et cetera. One of the orgs I was at, um, I was in FS ISAC at one of the financial services companies that um i worked in in extremely helpful information and gave us a heads up as you shared uh let's see here some more comments um mr p said well brent talked about hipaa in his third decade you know when when you all were talking about the various laws and regulations um mr p says creating community guidelines and protocols that's much more that is much more sustainable um Sterling Richards, this is delayed and relates to the previous piece with regards to phishing and specifically attackers attempt to put us in an urgent situation and that's established. People go into panic mode. It's almost like they are taking advantage of our emotions and creating major concern because they know we are humans. And if there's a legitimate reason that we can relate to, unfortunately, they got us good. And then there goes our information and we're compromised. That's the frightening part about it. 
Oh, the human psychology behind a good phishing attack is outstanding. So are you guys familiar with um, security awareness training that does fake phishing, right? This is a pretty common technique a lot of companies do. The CISOs team is sending out fake phishing emails, and if you click, you get, a, oh, this could have been a real fish kind of lecture right. or whatever it might be. Um, I personally have quit doing those, and the reason I quit doing those is I realized no matter how much I trained my, my, my employee base, no matter how much I trained folks, no matter how much awareness I was able to put out there, no matter how many defenses I could put in place, there is always going to be one phishing email that somebody will click on guaranteed, right? And the one that got me, I was at a company that was being acquired and I sent out a fake phishing email on, uh, I pretended it was a TechCrunch article about the inside scoop on the acquisition and why were we really being acquired and who was doing it, what the incentives and motivations were, et cetera. I got the CEO himself to click on that email. Right. Yep. I had a friend, another CISO, who told me about a lost puppy in the parking lot, even a photo of the poor, pathetic little puppy. And everybody clicked the poor, pathetic puppy email. And that was a fake fish. Right. So um, they'll get you one way or the other. The human psychology, the sense of urgency to, to your point, um, sense of greed. Hey, click here and get a thing. You know, like like there's a million and one ways to appeal to the human psyche and get them to do a simple click. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, let's see. Last kind of last couple comments. Mark Schleisner says people like us have been screaming for years that tech companies should work together to combat cyber attackers. Why isn't it happening? Because there's still no sense of urgency other than mouthing platitudes. That's what Mark Schleisner. I blame James Azar. You could. We could all um, blame him. Yeah. Um, you can't, you can't blame me. I've, I've been, you know, I've, I've failed in my, my life's mission of bringing everyone together. You're, you're still here. You, you can although, still work. I've got good news. Alan and I are doing a live together. So that's yeah. going to be we got a live podcast coming up. That's very, very exciting. Yeah. So last couple comments, and then I'll let you guys talk about it. So uh, Heather says, Heather Hall says, even the best of the best will click. It is true. And Brent enjoyed us. Thank you, Brent, for being here and being such a great uh, contributor. I love the comments um, and the engagement. We all really appreciate that. So before we jump, Alan, James, talk, talk to talk to folks about what you're what you're doing next. Your collabo. So we're 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 um, we're kind of going to do the uh, the 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 Cyber CISO uh, live show uh, next Friday, uh, I believe. Right? It's next Friday or Friday after I, next? I think it's next Friday. I think it's next Friday. <laughs> My calendar is so busy. I got to go chat. look. Yeah, me too. Um, I believe it's next Friday. We'll 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 post it, um, and um, we're just going to do kind of like an open AMA and talk about anything. And you get to yeah. kind of you know come and, and and spend an hour with us and just hang out, and we'll be live and we'll we'll be talking about stuff. I promise you that stuff that you know. Oftentimes we we can't always talk about it. Yep, that'll be fun. Yeah. It'll be good. This is good. This is good. Mark says, we love James Azar. Don't quit. We can't. He's not, <laughs> there not you going go. anywhere. And don't forget to like and subscribe. See, Zoe. <laughs> Zoe's got your job down. That's Renee. awesome. That's Thank awesome. you, Zoe. <laughs> and I got to say, every time you guys invite me to one of these, I'm so grateful because this is my lunch break. And I'm, you know what I mean? Like I can hop in, do the show, hop out. Like it, yeah, this is perfect. Y'all schedule this for lunchtime, Texas time, which I love. We love having you, Alan. Thank you so, so yes, much. Yes, and we love Texas. Me. I mean, we do. We love Texas. We <laughs> love you, and we love Texas. All right, folks. See you next week, Thursday, same place, same time. Thank you all I'll for be being good here. Now. Bye, everybody. 
in the rapidly evolving world of cybersecurity. Your business needs a guide that's as dynamic as the threats you face. CPF Coaching LLC delivers unparalleled expertise to elevate your cybersecurity startup or business with a decade and a half of specialized experience. We're not just advisors, we're your strategic partners in growth and risk mitigation. Our tailored advisory services range from immediate hourly guidance to comprehensive three or six month packages, all supported with encrypted messaging for real-time assistance. For more information, cpfcoaching.com is your destination. Forge a path to success and distinction in the cybersecurity landscape. Connect with CPF Coaching LLC today and secure your business's future.